0: So the account that uh, they were going to be considering uh, today is a kind of a quick little departure from the story of Paul's uh, post-conversion travels uh, back into the life and the ministry of the Apostle Peter, who, if you uh, remember, along with the church in Jerusalem, had begun to be severely persecuted to the point where uh, Peter's life had actually been threatened a couple of times. And. Uh, believers who had been meeting together so faithfully began to be scattered and how for that reason Peter had moved uh, from Israel's capital to stay for a short time uh, in a small city near the Mediterranean coast which is where we pick up the text today Uh, just as things in the world are starting to calm down a little bit for the Christian faith uh, and where it was concerned and if you remember we're we're kind of in our diversion from the lectionary so we're in our summer teaching series through the book of Acts, and so I hope you have your Bible with you. And I'm going to be reading to you Acts chapter 9, uh, verses 31 to 42. So Acts chapter 9, 31 to 42. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. And now, as Peter went here and there among them all, uh, he came down also to the saints who lived in Lydda. And there he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you, rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Another was in Joppa, a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. As since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived... Uh, He they took him to the upper room All the widows stood beside him weeping And showing tunics and other garments that dorcas had made while she was with them But peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed and turning to the body. He said tabitha Arise and she opened her eyes and when she saw peter she sat up And he gave her his hand and raised her up and then calling the saints and widows. He presented her alive And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord to us today. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much uh, again for the faithful testimony of your disciples in the first century church. We thank you for the faithful witness of their lives and of their faith and of their encounter with you. And Lord, we ask uh, that you would lend us that same Holy Spirit that you poured out on the day of Pentecost to teach us all that you have for us this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so it's been said, if you want to change the world, start off by making your bed. right? Or at least so says uh, Admiral William H. McRaven in his commencement address to the graduates of the University of Texas at Austin on May 17, 2014. You, you probably like saw clips of that on the internet before, right? Have you seen him give that speech? right? Or maybe on the news at the time. Uh, and, and he continues he says in doing so you accomplish the first task of your day giving yourself a sense of pride that'll encourage you to do another task and another and another triggering a whole chain reaction of productivity that will reinforce the fact that little things in life matter he says if you can't do the little things right you'll never do the big things right and so if you want to change the world start off by making your bed the only trouble is it's a little hard to do that if you can't get out of it. Right? Like poor Aeneas, who shows up in Acts 33, where I just read to you that there was in Lydda that Peter found a man named Aeneas bedridden for eight years who was paralyzed. And kind of the weird thing as we step into this story, you know, when you think about it, because for as much as we know about Peter, we know equally less about Aeneas, right? In fact, in all the Bible, he's only mentioned here in this little passage. Here's all we know about him. Uh, His name indicates that he was most likely a Greek man and not a Jew. uh, Because Aeneas was not a common Jewish name, but it was a very common Greek name. And verse 33 also tells us this man had some sort of accident or illness that had left him confined to his bed. And if you've ever been in that position, how many people have been confined to bed, even briefly? Yeah, you can appreciate how difficult that was, right? And now imagine eight years of it. Eight years of being paralyzed, of not being able to work, not being able to walk to the market uh, or to the synagogue or to a neighbor's house without troubling family or friends to transport you. Uh, Eight years of not being able to take himself to the bathroom or to the dinner table or to the fresh air outside, not even able to make his own bed or do any of the other activities of daily living, uh, which must have surely left him in a state of hopelessness and depression. And I think maybe it's just a a closer illustration to us. I think uh, many of you probably know the name of Johnny Erickson Tata, right? You guys know Johnny. Um, For any that don't, she's the young woman who on July 30th, 1967 was injured in a diving accident as a teenager. Uh, So at just 17 years of age, she broke her neck and has spent the last 54 years of her life in a wheelchair. And she wrote in her autobiography that in the first years after her injury, that she was in the pits of despair, and she said, I desperately wanted to kill myself, but I couldn't move anything except my head. She says, Physically, I was little more than a corpse. I had no hope of ever walking again. She said, I had absolutely no idea of how I could find purpose or meaning in just existing day after day, waking, eating, watching TV, and sleeping. And asking, Why on earth should a person be forced to live out such a dreary existence? Just how I prayed for some accident or miracle to kill me. The mental and spiritual anguish was as unbearable as the physical torture. But once again, there was no way for me to commit suicide. I was despondent, but I was also angry because of my helplessness. And how I wished for the strength and control of my fingers to do something, anything, to end my life. And she continues, I doubted God, thinking, who or what is God? Certainly not a personal being who cares for individuals, I reasoned. And she says, what use is there in believing when your prayers fall on deaf ears? And I have no doubt in believing that Aeneas felt exactly the same way. Until that is, we find in verse 33 that Peter found him. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise up and make your bed. And immediately he arose. He arose. And one commentator said on this, He said, I'd imagine he rolled up his bed in record time, for he was now freed from the affliction of eight years. He was ready to walk and to run and to leap and to climb, uh, to kneel and to squat. And he says, perhaps if you were a young man, even to do some jumping. <laughs> uh, if you remember from a few sermons back, we saw Peter do something similar with the lame beggar in Acts chapter 3. When he said to him the same thing, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And and how the man that Peter had healed, that lame man, went about, we're told, walking and leaping and praising God. Uh, now, we don't know explicitly from this text this morning if this man went about uh, walking or, or leaping uh, and praising God. But, you know, I wouldn't be surprised at all if he did. Because, church, when God heals, he heals completely. Amen. And more importantly, when God heals, he heals with a purpose. Right. We see that purpose in verse 35. Verse <clears> 35. And all the residents of Lida and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Right? They turned to the Lord. And we're not talking about the residents of some little rinky-dink backwater region. History tells us this area uh, was all situated around a, the great caravan route between Babylon and Egypt. Second in importance only to Jerusalem, and so likely with a population of hundreds of thousands of people who were told, Turn to the Lord. They believed in Christ. They professed faith in him. They embraced the gospel as preached by Peter and were all baptized and added to the church, which, brothers and sisters, is the point and the purpose of any miracle that ever happens. Despite what the health and wealth gospel will tell you, miracles are not for the benefit of one individual person, but they are church for the glory of God and for the extension of his kingdom. So the people who have only a cursory understanding of the Bible believe that Jesus and his apostles After him, just went around teaching good morals and performing lots of personal miracles. But nothing could be further from the truth because the healings and the miracles weren't the primary mission. In fact, if you really think about it at best, they were only temporary. None of those people that got healed went on to live disease-free, pain-free lives forever, right? They're not still with us, right? They all eventually got sick again. They all eventually died. Because in every instance, the miracles were not a singular blessing on one individual church. They were a sign in confirmation of God's message and of his messenger in order that other people might hear and believe. It's the same type of parallel that the Apostle Paul would make from the lesser covenant at Mount Sinai to the greater covenant we have in Christ. When he says in 2 Corinthians 3, uh, he says, Now if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory... So that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory. Transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison to the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of what lasts? Do you understand what I mean by that? He's saying just like the giving of the law on Mount Sinai with all of the thunder and the smoke and the radiant glow of the presence of God still visible on the face of Moses is nothing compared to what Christ did for us on the cross. And so in the same way, even the best miracle, as incredible as it was, as powerful as it was, as important and special and life changing as it was to the person who had been on the receiving end of it is nothing ...compared to the riches of God's word that we have in the Bible. And once the message was confirmed in the Bible, the signs faded away... ...and now that we have the full testimony of God's word, his holy word in written form... ...we don't need to have those signs to be repeated in our lives. But we do need to receive the same gospel message that those folks of old did. So that we, like they, may be delivered from the fear of death. Right? That's the second half of today's story, right? Right? We read in verse 36, now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which being translated means Dorcas. And what an unfortunate name, right? Um, But she was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And since Elida was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. And so they, they called for Peter, but, you know, the text doesn't tell us what, if anything, they expected him to do, does it? Uh, one theologian asked it this way. He said, did they just want his apostolic consolation in their sorrow? Did they want to show him Dorcas' corpse and ask the theodicy question of how God could allow such a thing? And is this all the more difference there is between followers of Jesus and what he provides for us? Did they hope he'd do some grand miracle to bring her back to life? He says, we, don't, we simply don't know. Uh, so no specific request was made of Peter initially. And even once he arrived on the scene at the place where the body was, no request was made of him then either. Uh, in fact, from the look of things, we could even say, it appears perhaps they really did just want to honor Dorcas by having the apostle there to show him some of the clothing she had made. And share with him how important her personal Christian ministry had been in good works to the community. And honestly, why would they expect anything else? People died all the time in the days of the early church, just like they have done and still do today. I mean, If you read through scripture, the percentage of folks raised back to life is astronomically small. Uh, Being a disciple in the early church was no guarantee of a disease or death-free life. In fact, in writing on this, one commentator said not long after the first Christian sermons got preached, those same early Christians had to adapt to a new form of proclamation, namely the Christian funeral sermon. So all things being equal, there was no good reason Dorcas would not have remained dead. And Peter could have just as well preached her funeral as raised her back to life. That's not what happened, was it? then we're told that Peter put them outside and knelt down and prayed. So after shuffling everyone out of the room, Peter kneels down beside the bed and prayed. And I would imagine maybe not even knowing himself what he was supposed to be doing at that moment. I mean, healing a lame man, sure. But this? I mean, miracles are rare enough. But instances of resurrection are rarer still. You know, people have kind of got the misconception that healings and, and miracles and resurrections were being doled out like candy out of a pinata in the first century uh, miracles uh, were still exactly that they were miracles they were supernatural they were not the norm by any stretch of the imagination I think about it like this remember the first lame man that Peter healed back in Acts 3 and this blew me away when I was thinking about this I, I talked to Vicki about this back in the original sermon do you remember how? who remembers how many years the text says that the man sat by the temple gate begging for alms anybody 40 years okay now guess who that means must have seen him at least once if not multiple times and yet not Jesus that's right 40 years right remember Jesus who went to the temple at least three times a year every year at a minimum for the 30 years of his life and the temple was big but guys it wasn't that big that they would not have encountered each other in their overlapping lifetimes but the man of God never got healed until the time was right And not his time, but God's time. And the time that would add the most to the kingdom. And the same is true in our text today where we read, and turning to the body, Peter said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. And then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. So evidently, God revealed to Peter what he was about to do for Tabitha, And so in obedience, Peter spoke to her. And he gave her his hand to help her up. And a miracle, I think, more complex on the physical level than we sometimes appreciate happened. And she did get up. She woke up. She came back to life. The decay that had begun to happen to her on a cellular level was immediately reversed. Her blood-starved brain that was shorted out now refired on all its neurons. The lungs refilled with air, and she was back. As undeniably alive and herself again as she had been indisputably dead a few moments earlier. And Peter took her by the hand and he helped her up from the bed and then called back all the mourners that were gathered downstairs and presented her to them alive. Now, in some sense, the work of the church, of course, could have continued without her, right? Obviously, right? And just as obviously the day eventually came when she would die again and no one would be there to resuscitate her. But for, for this moment, she was back. She, she was back out of bed and immediately able to have not only made up that bed, but was up to the task of again serving the widows and the orphans she had taken care of only a few short days earlier. Demonstrating, church, that in Christ, even death cannot defeat us and that regardless of how many times life knocks us down and lays us out, we never have to give up hope. Because one way or another, we are all going to be raised again. Now, in the case of Joni erickson Tata getting up for her, that meant trusting in the Lord for her daily circumstances and her daily bread. And if you know her story, you know that the Lord was far from done with her. Uh, Because as we sit here today, she continues to make monthly public appearances. She writes a daily blog. She just authored a children's book. She's gifted 200,000 wheelchairs internationally. She's funded 64,000 special needs families at respite retreats and getaways and delivered 111,000 Bibles globally while traveling the world from her wheelchair to minister in the name of Jesus. Not only to other disabled people, but carrying her radiant joy in the Lord everywhere she goes and to everyone she meets, proclaiming her faith and using her disability to glorify Christ. For the, for the layman in Lida being raised meant getting back on his feet. Not only so he could take care of the mundane needs and the daily minutia of life, but to give glory to God and to be a living witness of God's great mercy and his overwhelming grace to the point that it sparked a great awakening among all the inhabitants of that whole region. And the same is true for Tabitha, who was raised to new life and testimony of that great getting up morning that is the promise of every child of God. The promise of a life and faith and health and spiritual healing that is all bound up in the bounty of this table that's laid out before us. This table that you are invited to rise up and to walk to at the invitation of the Father, being guided by the hand of the Son through the power of the Holy Spirit, bringing you back from the death of sin and into communion with him. Will you pray with me? God our Father is truly right and our greatest joy always and everywhere to give you thanks and praise especially in this holy supper recalling that perfect sacrifice once offered on the cross by our Lord Jesus Christ and asking you Lord by the joy of his resurrection and in expectation of his coming again that you unite us in your truth and love so we can confess your name and sit together at one table so come now Lord and continue your transforming work in this place and in this time that eyes may be opened, that hearts may be radically changed by the good news of the gospel. And so remembering now your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we take from your creation this bread and this wine, and we ask you to pour out on us your Holy Spirit, on us and these gifts, that this meal may be for us a communion with our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.